Good afternoon, and thank you for coming to Books Sandwiched In. My name is Martha Gill. I'm with Friends of the Library. Our speaker today, Dr. Edward Caudill, is a professor of journalism and electronic media at the University of Tennessee. He's also an author. His most recent book is Intelligently Designed, How Creationists Built the Campaign Against Evolution. That sounds like a real page-turner as far as I'm concerned. I, I'm, I'm quite serious about it. I simply don't understand it. Uh, and I look forward to being enlightened about how it happened. As a matter of fact, Dr. Caudill was interviewed by the author of today's book as part of her national public radio's broadcast on the media. Those of us who are fans of that show, never miss it on a Sunday, are most eager to hear Dr. Caudill's talk about Brooke Gladstone's book. Good afternoon, and glad to be here, and hopefully I can provoke a few of you. Now, one of the things I want you to ponder as we talk about this, because I think it's most worthy of discussion, the elephant in the room with this book, this is the format. I've already heard objections, and I've already heard uh, that's, that's something of a rarity, that before I even speak, I have objections. Uh, but it's flattering. It's flattering. So, but let's start with that most significant question. And she brings it up in the introduction. And I love the way she just phrases it. Do media choices make us stupid? <laughs> a woman after my own heart that can ask a question like that. Because it is a classic question. And I know there are a number of students in the room, and a number of you look fairly intelligent. So that makes me think we have a well-read audience. You know this is a classic question in sociology, in biology, in psychology, and that question, the nature-nurture one. In other words, are we born stupid or do we become stupid? (laughs) But seriously, she has a point. Where do the media play in this? Are the media making us more ignorant? And she comes after that, I think, pretty well. Especially when she deals with new media formats. Uh, A phenomenon that I would call tunneling. As you know, I think probably all of you in the room know, you can go on the Internet, as she points out, and you can tunnel into a subject and never look to either side to find out that, like the New York Times today, even if I don't care or don't understand, I do know something's going on in the Middle East. I happen to know something about Chris Christie, who I would care less about knowing any more about. But he's still around. And soccer. That's another one we'll talk about more, too. But she points out in here that the wash of media the tide of media affect the way we view the world. We do live in a mediated world. Now, this traditional form of media says something about the way we approach the world. You can't help but know what's going on around it. You may not want to know much about it, but you will know. That's true with the evening news also. 
But with new media forms, you can be pathetically ignorant and get by just fine. Not that that's anything new in the world. So as I looked at what she was doing, one of the things that comes up, and I want you to consider, she has a brief history early on of speech suppression. Well, now you're after my own heart when you start to talk about history, freedom of expression, etc. Is she committing a gross historical fallacy called presentism? If you're not familiar with it, that's taking contemporary norms and imposing them on the past. In other words, they were wrong because they didn't do it like we would have done it. But then again, if you don't do that, maybe you're letting off some horrible sins of the past, too. Think about it. Was the press oppressive or oppressed by historical standards or by contemporary standards? It can be a substantial question. There were limits on what the First Amendment meant for the Founding Fathers. And, of course, now we look at them like some of my colleagues at the university do, and they're just appalled that we had an Alien Sedition Act. It was terrible when Adams did that. And some of the suppression that occurred with the free, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You get the idea. Oh, by the way, they didn't know that this United States of America thing was going to work. It could have collapsed easily. So maybe the press needed a lid on it, just to offer a contrarian point of view. And she mentions early, a few pages after that, now we come to the elephant in the room, McCarthyism. I say the elephant in the room because this was good and appropriate to what she was doing, talking about the role of the press in the McCarthy era. And I'm sure most of you, and if you students haven't, you should see some of the YouTube video from that. When uh, the attorney Welsh confronts McCarthy, have you no sense of decency? Mr. Chairman, have you no sense of decency? This young man has endured enough from you. The format doesn't cut it. I'm sorry. We needed a video link. When you see Welsh take on McCarthy, then the whole event changes. I'm sorry, the text version and my version don't cut it either. But it has a whole drama that's missing with this format. One a little closer to home. What did the president know and when did he know it? See, I, can't, I don't quite get it right. But if you see that young senator take on the executive branch with those words, you need to see it. You really do. Now, here again, this format concerns me a little bit. I, I kind of liked it, to tell you the truth. But then again, I was raised on comic books. <laughs> Still like them. But did she come up short? In this mediated age, if this were an e-book, you could immediately flip over and watch Senator Baker challenge the executive branch on that point. Or if you had the room for a full text account of that old-fashioned book type stuff for you youngsters is what I'm talking about. You could get my unraveling of the event 
in a mere 50 or 60 pages. But seriously, maybe the middle ground here just doesn't quite cut it. Well, let's get to some of the things where she really shines. Good sources versus simply a source. This is a problem for journalists. What is it when you're biased? You are, by the way. What about this idea of fairness she brings up? Is it always a good idea to have the other side? Think about it for a moment. I'm serious. What if the other side doesn't merit a hearing? There are ideas out there that are unworthy. I'm sorry. Immoral. I don't say that in a religious sense of the word. They're just wrong. Do you give them airtime? Well, who do you think you are to decide something like this? In other words, it doesn't cut it for you, therefore it's out. She tackles this very well. By the way, she doesn't come to a conclusion. She simply says, it's a dilemma, and it's something we have to wrestle with on a regular basis. This is part of the problem that she brings up deftly of dealing with professional standards in a profession that's not very well defined and with standards that are rather elastic. Uh, Let me go to an aside here, a rather self-indulgent one, for just a moment. The creationists, the anti-evolutionists, you have a school board meeting, you have a city council meeting, a county commission meeting. And in this part of the country, as you know, we're, we're inclined to have the representative of ignorance in that crowd. I don't, I'm unbiased. And, <laughs> but what do you do as a reporter? Do you simply put the, turn the camera off, turn the recorder off, put the pen down, and wait for this moron to finish talking and then get with the real business? Do you just stop taking it? You don't report it in the next day's newspaper on this evening's news. It's a really stupid idea that the earth is 6,000 years old. But what do you do with that? Is it fair for me to simply say, as Gladstone points out, nah, won't bother with it. By the way, that person bringing up that idea represents anywhere from 35 to 50% of your audience. So it's a bad business decision to exclude them, by the way. You might want your paper to stay in business. So, Ed, put it in the story. don't care what you think. Well, so fairness is, as she points out, a lose-lose proposition for the media. Uh, are the media obligated to be unbalanced, so to speak, uh, in the face of certain issues or evils? Who decides it? Well, to her credit... She's quite clear on the nature of the dilemma and doesn't pretend to an answer. Visual bias. You've heard this one. If it bleeds, it leads. Vietnam was a televised war, as she points out. Now, there's one to start an argument with. What about Vietnam? Were we right? Were we wrong? What did the media add to that? Or how did the media detract from our understanding of the conflict? 
We got to see lots of violence and gore. We got to see war in a way it had never been seen before in history. You get to see a street execution where a man's brains are blown out. You get to see a little girl whose clothes have been burned off of her by napalm. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. What, what about communism versus democracy? What about the conquest of a quasi-democratic country, corrupt to its core, being taken over by communists? What about that issue? I just don't remember seeing that on the evening news. That's the visual bias that she talks about. We also get the historical issues. I was really impressed with the part where she brings up William Tecumseh Sherman. Now, if some earlier comments didn't convince you that I was totally self-centered and egotistical, this will. That's because Dr. Ashdown, sitting back in the corner, and I have done a book on Sherman. (laughs) Sherman hated the press had absolute contempt for the press. He even expelled reporters, had them sent back across the lines. He really wanted to hang a few reporters. And he had sympathizers. And there were a few cases where he probably had just cause when you start to look back at it just a little bit. The however, the historical however, I love those. The march to the sea, you've heard of that one. Probably some of your grandparents' homes were there and things like that. That was the greatest propaganda victory of the era. The march to the sea needed the press. The press ate that up. What a great story. Militarily, it was a cakewalk. But what a victory. And then when he gets to Savannah on December 23, 1864, what does he do? He sends a telegram to the White House giving them the city as a present. Brilliant. Militarily, meaningless. In terms of propaganda, brilliant. This guy hates the press, by the way, which he masterfully manipulated. Well, other bias that she talks about. The disclosure bias Are we better off in a mediated world in which outlets are up front about their biases, or are we better off with, and I have in parentheses the word quaint, professional standards of objectivity? I'm serious about it, though. We all know MSNBC versus Fox. But are there subtle biases in the allegedly middle-of-the-road media that mm, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. As one of the journalists, I hope it's not. As one of the viewers, I know it is. What do you do with that? Transparency is not the same as trust. In fact, perhaps the job of transparency, which journalists tend to love, may breed distrust. Is this good? In this mediated world, she points out in very good form that often we're getting led around by the media. That sort of surprises me because she's so much a part of that structure. And she tended to have some gravitas about it that, that I don't suffer. Here's the question of the day. How many of you really give a damn about soccer? 
I got two hands, okay. Three, okay. Got three and four, maybe. Well, that's about three more than I expected. (laughs) But how many of you tuned in, listened to, know about that seven-to-one triumph, you know, that one final dramatic goal with Germany? I could care less. But I was tuned in. I was read about it, etc. Didn't have the faintest idea what I was watching. Isn't that the media? Every four years we get interested in this event that we don't care about. That's really improperly named when they call it football. We know it's not. Uh, or, or maybe it's the kind of thing that every four years when the Olympics comes on that suddenly I'm a fan of women's beach volleyball. Well, that's me getting led around by the media again, isn't it? Well, when you think about what she's talking about, and I don't know what I think of the format, but I'd like to start there. She says in an interview, why did you do it this way? And I quote from her, a comic book is both concise, dense, and forces a kind of mental discipline that I have since used in my first writing for radio. Okay. I don't know that I'm buying it, but I like that argument. You consider for a moment how often you have done this. You're probably wrong, but you got a great argument for it. (laughs) And there's some appeal to that. For her, with this format, I quote her, no temporizing, no thumb-sucking. Oh, you mean you didn't want to write more? Oh, that's cynical on my part. I wouldn't do that. Um, And when she's asked about the media, what people really want, what they need from the media, is a reflection of their own values and their own priorities. I suspect that's true. And she calls this, she calls the media a funhouse mirror in the way it reflects our values. So when this group picks up the newspaper, watches the news this evening, and are a bit dismissive, are a bit know-it-all superior, then why are you watching it? You're consuming it. And she makes this point. You're creating that media because they're pandering to you. So when Dr. Caudle is picking up these stories about Roan County and God we trust over the courthouse and is reading it, well, I'm propelling the issue by consuming the media. She points out, I don't absolve the media of blame for being trivial, but it's some of the best reporting we've ever seen in this contemporary age. Trite and significant all in one. And what do you do with that approach to media? Can you be trite and significant? I suspect so. I'm not real sure. Now, I'm going to tune out about 15 or 16 of you in here, however big your class is, because, but the rest of us remember the Watergate hearings. The world was coming apart. America was going to hell. And it was just a matter of time. Everything seemed like it was going to collapse. There was a wonderful alternative explanation to that. No, the media did what it was supposed to do. 
those endless hearings in Washington that just went on for hours and hours and hours that showed us falling apart, that showed the executive branch was corrupt to the bone. What did it do? It showed it was working. We did what we were supposed to do as a country. That's what the media accomplished. So you, when you read for the umpteenth time some really stupid remark from one of your local representatives, whether at the state, the county, or the city level, and you slap your forehead, and then you have all those marvelous Minkian adjectives in front of it. <laughs> I, heard of, I heard of too many approvals on that. that uh, is that being trite on the part of the media? Or are they doing what they're supposed to do that show this is your world that you're part of? Well, let me, let me stop there, and I would like to hear from some of you and some of your ideas about where this goes right and wrong, and don't you dare leave out the format issue. Yes, sir. Uh, the climate denial movement is probably the most harmful lie that's ever been foisted on the American people. Well, well don't hesitate to give your opinion now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, 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 think, I think that's reasonably objective. <laughs> and essentially it's advertising being done primarily on the web by the fossil fuel industry. What's your perspective on that as a student of creationism? Well, she's, that's what she called the fairness bias. And I think that Journalists are in a corner on that. I think she is correct on that point. I, I agree with you, by the way. Now, given that, look at what's going on. We have the science. How certain are the scientists? They speak with confidence intervals and margins of error. And they're high in this case. Uh, I don't know how high they are. Uh, if you're a scientist, you might be able to tell me, but let's give them. 95% plus or minus 3 to 5. That's pretty good. It's probably better than that as far as the data are concerned. Aha! You have uncertainty. Five per, there's a 1 in 20 chance, 5%, that you're just completely wrong. I, on the other hand, since I operate from faith, am absolutely certain. She calls it narrative bias. Science is not a good narrative. It's a method. It's a process. These are science deniers. Science can be denied because you're dealing with confidence intervals and margins of error. Those are mathematical. If you are certain, absolutely, then you're not doing science. But if you're not certain, there's an opening. Now I've got a story to tell you with a beginning, a middle, an end, and I've got a great nutty figure in the middle of it. Now what does a reporter do with that? Does the reporter in the room say, he's a nut, so just forget it? I think she's correct. You're obligated to put that person in there. That does represent some sector of the community, of your audience, of your readership. Just like you should not say or pretend that he or she doesn't exist on the school board that says, we've got to get this evolution crap out of the textbooks. 
Now, that's inane, but you can't ignore it. I think that the naysayers of science have simply figured out how to paint the media in this corner, and the media are trapped in that corner now by their own convention, that if you're going to represent this side, then you are obligated, and they're right, ethically, that you are obligated to tell both sides. The fallacy there is, of course, that there are two sides. You see, in politics, political stories, we have a two-party system, so guess what? we got two sides. Look how neat that is for storytelling, a good guy, a bad guy. And so if you can fit it to a political story template, it makes my job so much easier. By the way, it makes your responsibility as an informed citizen easier, too. There's two sides. Not five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Forget it. I'm done. I'm out of here. You're asking me to write a history of the Middle East conflict now. Can't do it. And so there's where the problem occurs, that this person who represents a small but vocal minority, who's to exclude them? Now, we've been dealing with these science issues in that context. That's, that's kind of easy, but stop for a moment. Think, that vocal, wrong-headed minority that's bringing up these annoying, damnable questions What about the civil rights movement in the 1950s? Lots of journalists excluded the other voice. Who were they to exclude it? See, science is easy in this respect. These things aren't. What James Madison called it was tyranny by the majority. So journalists are really being quite careful, as aggravating as it might be, to not be tyrannized by the majority, even when the majority is right in scientific terms. So that, that is her fairness bias, and it's a problem. You're going to have to wrestle with that ad nauseum forever. Yes, sir? Um, I'd like you to expand a little bit on this argument that the media reflects our values. And I would say, yeah, the media reflect our values in terms of the choice of subject, but not necessarily in the content. And the choice of subject, the Knoxville News Sentinel seems to get a lot of its news off police radio. And, uh, you know, car accidents, deaths, murders, crimes, break-ins. And, you know, that selection, I suspect it's dictated by economic realities. It's a lot easier to get those stories, but I don't know. But the over, what I would call the overplay on that, that's my bias, the overplay on that leads people, I think, to believe the world is more dangerous than it really is. There's a lot more crime going on there because half the new Sentinel is full of crime. (laughs) Well, by the way, research in media, and this goes back decades, has shown that that scary world phenomenon is a real one, that people do start to see the world as much more dangerous than it actually is because we have such an exaggerated reporting of these things, and you are right. It's an economical way to do things. In-depth investigative reporting is expensive. That's why we don't see a lot of it. Uh, Absolutely true. The flip side of that, that crime reporting, you read it. 
If there were a sudden surge of complaints about the police coverage, that news, it would dwindle. I don't doubt that for a moment. So you're looking at two things here. To what extent is it responsible to let me know what parts of Knoxville I need to stay away from? And to what extent are you being irresponsible in exaggerating the crimes in those neighborhoods? Uh, Is there an answer to it? No. And, of course, well, I guess there's that third factor. I'm just dying to read about it. Uh, I mean, I saw the one in the New Sentinel this morning, probably more indicative of my warped frame of mind than anything else, mausoleum rapist sentenced. Well, my first question, how do you rape a mausoleum? Uh, (laughs) But seriously, what do I care? But see, you and I, we, we check this story out anyhow. We're guilty. You talked about in the beginning, you know, does the uh, media make us stupid or are we born stupid? Um, And I think during my lifetime, there's been this increase of people who want, you know, pundits specifically. Bill O'Reilly, Bill Maher, all these kind of different pundits. And I think there's more on TV and on the radio and on the Internet now than there's ever been before. What are your opinions on how pundits affect kind of the media climate and how they affect really what's on the agenda? She addresses that very specifically. And this was part of the interview that I found. What people really want, what they need from their media, is a reflection of their own values and own priorities. The preponderance of bias, is there more of it? Well, sure. Just like there are more people in America now. I don't think the media are any more biased now than they were in, say, 1775. You know, if you had the wrong point of view in Boston in 1775, you and your press could end up in the harbor. And what did you have? You had the wrong idea. Well, what does that tell you? You probably won't get thrown in the Tennessee River at this point, even if you are wrong. So we had an interlude in this nation of, oh, maybe a half century, where we had three networks, newspapers were thriving. We had fairly limited but responsible media, educated people, limited access in some respects. So it's a shock to the system when we've got this unlimited fount of media with almost unlimited access to it. And we haven't adjusted to that landscape yet. And anyone that tells you that we know what we're talking about when it comes to the new mediated landscape, they're lying. There's something about particularly radio, television, and even print media that makes the coverage of complex issues extremely difficult. And so, for example, even with social media, I think it's the narrative that is privileged. I've heard uh, medical doctors complain about how many people who oppose vaccination believe one or two anecdotes in conflict with tremendous amount of rather abstract research. And, And I think 
even the pundits are examples of trying to personalize complex issues. Well, yeah, that's what she calls the narrative bias. Uh, and I think, she's, I think she's absolutely correct that the narrative is privileged. Now, remember, and here again we have to uh, give some deference to our history as human beings, although that's only about 6,000 years old, right? Uh, that that in, in fact, the narrative is the way we passed on knowledge, the way we learned for millennia. And it's only the last few generations. Remember, modern science is only about a 200-year-old phenomenon. Okay, I know, so there were some German, unreadable German philosophers just before that. But you know, modern science starts in the early 19th century. This is a whole different mode of learning. So why are we surprised that people are skeptical of something that's only a few generations old? Absolutely. The vaccine, wonderful example. And everyone in this room is guilty of adopting anecdotal truth over statistical truth. I mean, one of my neighbors won the lottery. So, what are, why can't I? I'm, I might get it. I might do it. Now, you know, not likely. But I like the story better. After all, if that drunk won the lottery, why couldn't I? I've been in public administration. I've been in private business. And, and my observation through the years is that Every community has a psyche. Operated in three different cities, and they're all different. A total psychological difference. Knoxville has its own. That probably goes back to the Civil War. How much does the community or the national psyche influence what reporters have to say in the media? I think you're, you're partly right. I, I shouldn't say that. I should say I agree with you to some extent. When you look at the new Sentinel, they're not reflecting Knoxville in as much as they're reflecting their readership, which is not greater Knoxville or all of Knoxville. So what is this responsible? Is this irresponsible? They've got to stay in business. So they need to appeal to the interests and concerns of their audience. If they don't, they're gone. On the other hand, there is what's called in media studies the range of permissible opinion in which you can deviate from the interests, the concerns, and the opinions of your central audience. And so you can go in there and advocate, write stories about, some of these civil liberties that strike me as odd, if not outlandish. But that's okay. I'll still buy the newspaper. How far can you go in your range of opinion away from the center? And that's what media are constantly doing, testing that center to their, uh, I think, to their credit. Dr. Carter, you've given us so many great 
issues to think about. Uh, thank you so much for being here, and let's continue conversations like this. It's really good uh, for civic engagement. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Book Sandwiched In, a lunchtime book discussion series sponsored by Knox County Public Library in Knoxville, Tennessee. To find other podcasts, please visit our website at knoxlib.org.